thank you so much for checking out the Connect Church podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired by this week's sermon. So let's jump right in and check out this week's message. Let's thank Rick for being here with us today. You're going to see a lot of him in the days ahead as, as our vision goes through and we build a new home for Connect Church and also a side of Connect Christian Academy. You're going to see him a lot in the days ahead, but our vision team, we're going to work for hours this afternoon in order to work even closer to that end. So Rick, thank you so much for being here today. Um, if you were here last week, and I, some of you may not have been here last week, I just want to remind you of a truth today that is still alive and well. I encourage you to go back and watch last week's message as it sets up this week's message as well. But let me remind you, the sky is still not falling, but the sun still is coming. Jesus is coming again. The second coming of Jesus is the most awaited, anticipated, and celebrated event on the church calendar. We know this. Why? Over 318 times in the Bible is the second coming of Jesus referenced. And out of nearly one out of every 13 verses in the New Testament speak in some way to the second return of Jesus Christ. This coming of Jesus, this return of Christ was foremost in the mind and the hearts of the early church. But sadly, nowadays, it seems to be just an afterthought for so many who are in the church today. Something we think about when maybe the pastor preaches it, but really doesn't have much an effect overall in our everyday, in our everyday lives. And so we study in this Ask Me a Question series, we study just for a moment the end times or eschatology. And we understand this, that this study is under the umbrella of one biblical truth. Now I'm fixing to open an umbrella inside, and some of y'all are fixing to freak out, Right? Just wait until I walk underneath a ladder in front of a black cat, right? And so here we go. But here's the umbrella of truth that as a church, that biblical truth that we must rally to and we must be unified in. You ready? That Jesus Christ is coming again. It is unequivocal. It's without debate that Jesus is coming again. But under the umbrella of that truth where we are rallied to and we are unified, there are also, we know, Various viewpoints and variations of thoughts concerning the timing and the, the sequencing of these events. And, and I want to say this to you, and I want to argue this point. It's okay to have diversity of thought here. You won't hear that much in the church today. But under the umbrella of the truth that Jesus is coming again, it's okay if there's difference of thoughts and opinions according to, uh, concerning the, the timing and the sequencing of such events. St. Augustine said it pretty good when he said this, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, but in all things charity. What is essential church? And I hope, let me just say it again, Jesus Christ is coming again. It's essential. We rally and we're unified there. But what is non-essential? And by the way, when I say non-essential, I don't mean unimportant. By its very definition, non-essential means this, not absolutely necessary. So what is not absolutely necessary for us? That is absolute agreement on every nuance concerning the sequencing and timing of these last things, these end time events. But here's where we find ourselves. 
There is liberty for believers to come to a biblically driven and Christ-honoring conclusion concerning the end times. Remember what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, by your end time beliefs, they will know you're my disciples. It's not what he said, is it? In fact, we find it here in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, 35. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And so in all things, charity, an old preacher said it this way, no matter whether you believe we go before tribulation or we go through tribulation, we go with Jesus. We, Jesus is coming again. He's coming again. Uh, do y'all remember, if you're anything near my age, which I just turned 40 and everything hurts. So anyway, uh, if you're near my age, you remember middle school dances? Middle school dances. Man, I, I love them because here's what they look like. You dance with this girl, and you were, that was when social distancing began. It was just a run through for what we just went through. But, you, but you're social distancing, and, and there's a line across the entire auditorium, right? All the guys are on this side, and all the girls on that side. And as you're dancing, you actually never look at her or talk to her because you're talking to your buddy the whole time. Remember those days? And just some good old days. Well, I remember. In those days, uh, maybe it was a southern gospel group, but, but they were named R.E.M. Anybody remember a group by that? Maybe southern gospel-ish music. Anyway, R.E.M. in 1987 came out with a song that we would just absolutely go nuts to dancing to. You know what its lyrics were? It's the end of the world as we know it. Thank you for singing. How many of you guys have ever heard that song? A bunch of pagans listening. Anyway, so we would dance to this song, it's the end of the world as we know it. Nonsensical lyrics throughout the whole song. And, and then all of a sudden, it's the end of the world as we know it. And I'll be what? Fine. And I'll be fine. How does anybody get there? In these conversations of last things and end times, I want you to hear me, believer. These conversations should leave us awaiting, anticipating, and celebrating the second coming of Jesus, leaving us at this one point together. That even if it's the end of the world as we know it, I really will because of Jesus be fine. Hey, you ready? In Christ, it could be the end of the world as you know it, but you are going to be fine. You're going to be fine. And so the question comes, Anthony, is do you really believe Jesus is coming again? Let me tell you how simple-minded I am. And that is that if Jesus said it, the Bible teaches it, I believe it. And so, yes, Jesus is coming again. Well, Jesus said it. Best in Mark chapter 13, verse 26, that according to Jesus, that he will be coming back in the clouds. What an important distinction Jesus makes because it points back to the very glory of God in the Old Testament. Because why? Because clouds signified God's glory. You see, oftentimes when God appeared to his people in the Old Testament, it was in the form of a a great cloud. We see this when God led his people out of Egypt in Exodus 13, 21. We see this when God gave them the law in Exodus 24, 16. And we see this when his temple was dedicated in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 14. 
I love how J.D. Greer phrased it. He said it this way, this glory cloud was a sign that God was coming to dwell with his people. And by doing so, to undo the terror and pain caused by the fall. What Jesus says in Matthew 13, 26, is that his return means the permanent return of the very glory of God. It is a promise that all the pain and the suffering in our lives will not last forever. I mean, isn't that good? I shared this quote with you last week. The return of Christ is good news for those whose lives are filled with bad news. The return of Jesus is the very good news for those whose lives are filled with bad news. Well, you say, well, Anthony, listen, you went here last week. Why out of all the topics are you going here again this Sunday? Why are you preaching this again? In all honesty, I've not preached it enough. In all honesty, I need to remind you more that Jesus is coming. And so today, as we continue to talk about what we believe to be kind of the playing out of these end times, it is one more opportunity as I meet with you today, church, just to remind you and to celebrate with you that Jesus is coming again. And so the question comes, so when is he coming? I'll be honest. I dare not put a date on the calendar for that. Listen to what Jesus said. He said this, but about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but only the Father. Hey, hey, by the way, let me tell you what to be weary of. Be weary of the person who puts a date on the calendar of when Jesus comes again. And pray for him. Because what happens to false prophets via the Word of God gets pretty ugly. And so you know what? When is Jesus coming again? I ain't touching that with a 10-foot pole. I just don't, I don't know. Anthony, then, is there anything that is holding back this, this rescue or rapture of the church? And I want you to hear me. No. I mean, I've read the book, and I've studied the book, and there's nothing that's stopping Jesus or coming for his church. I love what one old preacher said. He says, man, I've, I've come to a place where I've stopped looking for signs and started listening for the shout. And honestly, that's where I am. One of the the greatest arguments for a pre-tribulation rapture or rescue of the church is the imminency passages. Dealing with Jesus' imminent return. We find passages like this all throughout the New Testament, but here's to name a few. The imminent return of Christ is found in 1 Corinthians 1 and Philippians 3, 1 Thessalonians 1, Titus 2, Hebrews 9, 1 Peter 1 and Jude 21. These passages that remind us that the early church were so convinced that Jesus could come back at any time that nothing else had to transpire before Jesus could come again. They they weren't waiting on an antichrist. They weren't waiting on a beast or his mark. Guys, listen. They were convinced that Jesus was coming for them. And this to me is the best explanation of what I advocated last week and continue to advocate this week that the church will not go through the tribulation or the great tribulation. Rather, we'll be raptured, we'll be rescued by Christ before those terrible seven years play out. And last week I gave you one reason why. Why? Because the church cannot and will never be touched by the wrath of God. Believer, it's not in the cards for you. 
to nowhere in your destiny to ever be touched by the wrath of God. That, by the way, that's what Jesus took for us. That's what, that's what he took for us. The period of tribulation, the great tribulation in Revelation 6 through 19 is marked by the wrath of God being poured out against all humanity and on earth. In Revelation, we find that the wicked cry out during this time. Look at this in Revelation 6. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who, who can stand? And yet, we're reminded in these end-time conversations through Paul as he writes the church, the Thessalonian church, in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, it is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath that is to come. And again, in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, we're reminded of this. For God has not destined us for what? For wrath. Wrath will no longer be a part of our story. Jesus made a really incredible promise to the church in Philadelphia in, Roman, er, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Uh, a pretty incredible promise to the church in Philadelphia. Now, let me just help you out, church. You ready? Like, when I hear the word Philadelphia, I, I was born and raised kind of those 90 area, right? You know what I think? It was Philadelphia, born and raised on the playgrounds where I spent most of my dates, chilling out like, it's not Fresh Princess, Philadelphia. Rather, a church struggling in modern-day Turkey. And so Paul writes to them, and he gives them a promise, but in verse 13, he reminds the church, hey, look, this isn't just for you, but this is for all the churches. And here's how that promise goes. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Well, you say, well, Anthony, but, but can't God, instead of just rescue and rapture and take his church out of this earth before the tribulation, can't God just preserve believers in the tribulation and great tribulation like we see in Revelation chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 12? As we see in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, when God would bring plagues upon Pharaoh and Egypt because of their rebellion to him, and God would preserve them And God would ultimately send a death angel. But he preserved his people as they took the blood of lamb and put it on the doorpost. And that death angel would pass by God's people and would take the firstborn in all of Egypt. Yes, God can preserve believers. Yes, God will preserve tribulation believers from his wrath as well. But I am telling you, church, I don't think we're talking preservation. I don't think the conversation for the church here is preservation but I really believe we're talking evacuation. I believe that God is going to evacuate his church before this terrible time. Dr. David Jeremiah said, what any good nation does just before it goes to war against another nation is it evacuates all its nationals, all those who belong to them. And I'm telling you, church, I am convinced that our king, as he wages war on wickedness, as he pours out his wrath on the earth, will do the very same for his church. I believe he evacuates his people. You see, God's pretty good at evacuation, isn't he? Go back to the story of Noah and his family. We find there that God evacuates Noah and his family on a life raft called an ark. God evacuated Lot and his daughters when he was fixing to pour out fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. God evacuates them. Now his wife gets a little salty. That's a different story. 
But God evacuates Lot and his daughters. I think of Rahab the spy and how God evacuated her from Jericho as those walls came tumbling down. In church, in all sincerity, you may disagree with me, but in all sincerity, I believe God evacuates the church before the days of those seven years of tribulation. Well, wait, if you listen, okay. But what about the Antichrist? Everybody wants to learn about the Antichrist. We see him first in Revelation chapter 6, verse 2. What about that dude? Why not preach more about him? I, I'm going to be honest with you. First of all, I would much rather preach about Christ, who is far more, far more consequential in the end times than I ever would the Antichrist. It brings me joy to preach about Jesus. But what about that poser? What about that imposter? What about that phony who is the Antichrist? Who is he? I have no idea. I get this question, is he alive now? I, I don't know, but if he is, could somebody kick him? Right? I, I don't know. Anthony, I, I want to know more about the Antichrist. Well, let me tell you who he's not. The Antichrist isn't always the politician who beats your politician in an election. And maybe we should just stop throwing that around so flippantly. There's a spirit of Antichrist that is alive and well on this planet today. But in the actual figure of Revelation chapter 6 of the great, I mean, I don't know who he is. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm not going to spend the rest of my life finding the Antichrist in everybody. I'm going to spend the rest of my days looking to Jesus. But here's what I do know about him. I am not afraid of him. I thought about it this week. If by some happenstance, that dude stood right here on this stage before me. I am telling you, there is not one ounce of fear in my body towards an enemy who soon will be defeated. Because greater is he who is in me than any chump who stands before me. I'm not afraid of him. And you know what? He's a defeated enemy. In fact, his eternity will be lakeside accommodations in the lake of fire. Hey, by the way, Theology 101 here, nowhere in Scripture are you and I commanded to fear the Antichrist, but we are told to make way for Jesus Christ in his soon return. Well, Anthony, uh, what about that beast, that false prophet? Let me just say this to you. This beast, this false prophet who's going to enforce this worship of the Antichrist in, in the last days. I'm, gonna, I'm not afraid of him. And by the way, I'm not afraid of his mark either, the mark of the beast. Anthony, do you know what the mark of the beast is? Yeah, no. I, I know what it looks like. Revelation teaches us in chapter 13 that it's some type of mark on the forehead or on the wrist. And it's numbers total six, six. Six. I don't even like that number, right? So let me tell you what happened here recently. Um, I, I got a new debit card, and, and I turned it on the back, you know, that little CVS number. You know what it was? 666. I was like, I don't believe in that stuff. And then I broke the card, threw it away, and called him told it was stolen, right? Yeah, I didn't want any part of that. Who knew, the, who knew the mark of the beast would come in the form of a debit card? And anyway, but let me, um, let me assure you of this. The mark of the beast will not be snuck in under the radar. It won't be slipped into a vaccine in order to catch people off guard. As I read in Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 through 18, this mark of the beast will be a matter of life and death. 
meaning a willful rejection of the Antichrist and his mark, will lead to the death of the tribulation believers. A willful acceptance of the Antichrist and his mark will lead to the death spiritually for all eternity for anyone who bears his mark. Let me tell you where I stand, believer. And you may not like this. You may want me to preach every Sunday about the Antichrist and the mark of the beast. I'm not going there. Because I'm not as concerned about the mark of the beast as much as I am that each one of us have been marked by the Lamb. That we bear the mark of Christ. That is where my concern lies. Have you been marked by faith in Jesus Christ? I'm ready to accompany Christ at the end of this great tribulation in Revelation chapter 19 when Christ comes with his church at his physical second coming at the very battle of Armageddon. And all the millennial reign of Christ, those 10 centuries he reigns physically on earth, what a sight to behold. I'm grateful that the great white throne judgment is nowhere near my eternal and eternity itinerary. For that judgment is reserved for those who have rejected Christ. That new heaven and new earth in Revelation chapter 21, I will walk there one day. Hey, believer, you will too. I can't wait to be in that city that needs no lights, that needs no sun, and needs no moon or stars. Because the light of Christ will light up that city. I I can't wait. I can't wait. But until then, Are we just to go stand outside in the yard and just look up at the sky? What are we to do? Well, we learn a valuable lesson, really, from the disciples. In Acts chapter 1, watch this. Uh, The Bible says this, that after he said this, meaning Jesus, as he was talking to his disciples, after he'd resurrected from the grave and spent some 40 days with them, After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. By the way, clouds, really cool in Scripture. Here we go, verse 10. They, meaning the disciples, were looking intently up into the skies as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Let let, let me just give you a picture of how the disciples looked. You ready? Amazed. Mouth wide open. Hey, by the way, That's how many of us Christians look when we have conversations of end times that we don't know a whole lot about and yet we're fearful of. We get a picture of the disciples looking at the sky, but watch what happens here. I love this exchange. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Hey, can I paraphrase this to you real quick? Hey, stop looking in the sky and start getting to work. Stop looking into the sky and get to work. You know what's amazing? If you and I are convinced that the world has an end and that that end could be soon, You know what it does? It rearranges our priorities, doesn't it? It rearranges what's important to us. It makes no sense, you ready, to go around rearranging deck chairs if you're on the sinking Titanic. The end has a way of arranging our priorities. Adrian Rogers said it this way, and I've said it many times as I preach, and I love it. And I agree with it. Believers ought to live as if Jesus died yesterday, rose again this morning, and is coming again this afternoon.
That's exactly where these end time conversations get us to. In Revelation chapter 22, in Jesus' own words, he affirms this. He says, yes, I am coming. And can I tell you what I really love second about this passage? Watch, watch John writing his response. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Excitement, anticipation, and longing for that coming. Amen, which means so let it be. Come, Lord Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22, there's an Aramaic word. Some of the very few words written in Aramaic in the New Testament. There's an Aramaic word that I love. It's Maranatha. And in the context of 1 Corinthians, we understand this, that it simply means this. Let me give you the idea behind it. You ready? It is a prayer of excitement that just calls out and says, come, Lord Jesus, come. It expresses the exact same sentiment of Revelation chapter 22. But it is this prayer, this excitement, Maranatha in Aramaic, that simply means come, Lord Jesus, come. Hey, when was the last time you cried out Maranatha? Not, not just the Aramaic word. When was the last time that you woke up in the very prayer on your heart, in your mind, and in your life? Was, was Maranatha? Would you come, Lord Jesus, come? When was the last time you put your head down on your pillow, believer? And from your very soul, you thought to yourself, I've served you today and I've loved you today. and I've not been perfect, but I've pursued you today. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. Yesterday I was at a Lutheran church in North Knoxville. A beloved mother and grandmother of some of our church members, her name is Asta. She had died at a, at a ripe old age and Man, just a sweet lady. I got to go in hospice and to pray with her and to, and to hold her hand. And what just a wonderful, a wonderful sister in Christ. Well, her funeral was yesterday at her Lutheran church in North Knoxville. And, and I got there. Let me just tell you something. This Lutheran pastor, man, he rocked it. He did a great job celebrating her life. And yet at the very end, he surprised me. The whole time he talked about Jesus, he prayed to Jesus, but at the very end, he cried out to Asta. I was like, what is happening here? He's like, Asta, can you do me a favor? And I thought to myself, if she answers. Asta, can you do me a favor? Could you ask Jesus to hurry up and come? Again, I can hardly wait. Knowing what I preached last week and this week, I was in the back pew I almost, and I caught myself, I almost went, me too, me, yeah, and I thought, that's inappropriate for a funeral, and I would be kicked out of a Lutheran church, but anyway, and I thought the same thing, and, and I got to thinking that no matter your denomination, your vocation, your location, no matter where you are, believer, there is one point of awaiting and anticipating and celebration, and that is Jesus coming again soon. You know what that pastor was saying? Maranatha, Lord Jesus, would you come? I want to close with this, um, with a Jewish wedding tradition. Suffer through this. Hang in there with me. I promise it's meaningful. You see, there's a Jewish wedding tradition. As a young man becomes of age to marry, 
What he will do is he will build a room onto his father's house. So there will be a place for him and his wife, his bride, to live. When the young man is ready to get married, he goes to his own father and gets permission to go after his bride. When the father's permission is given, the young man goes and he collects his bride. She never knows just when he'll come for her. So she has to be ready at all times. When he is near her home, listen to what happens. A trumpet will blast, signaling his coming and his return. A trumpet is blown, and then there is a shout that is given as he calls his wife to himself. And so she goes with him back to the room that's been prepared. And when they get to the father's house, she will remain with her husband for seven days. And at the end of that seven days, he will take her back to her family home. And by doing so, proclaiming to the world that I am her husband and she is my wife, that I am hers and she is mine. A beautiful Jewish wedding tradition. Hey, church, Jesus is in his father's house, according to John chapter 14. He's building a place, a room, for his bride, us, the church, to live. When God the Father gives Jesus the permission, he will come for his bride, the church. And when he gets here, a trumpet will sound and a shout will occur, and he will call his bride to himself. And he will take us to his Father's house. There the church will stay as we believe and we've taught with Jesus for seven years. And at the end of that seven years, Jesus will take us, his church, back to earth where he will claim to the world, she, my bride, the church, is mine, and I am hers. It's this great marriage supper of the Lamb spoken of in Revelation 19. You ought to go read it. And it's a beautiful picture of the things to come. But let me ask you this. Are you ready for his coming? Truly is the prayer on your heart and your mind and with your very life. Maranatha! Come, Lord Jesus, come. Or somewhere in the back of your mind and your heart, you are saying, no, no, wait, Jesus, wait. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I read this the other day, and it was a simple quote. Hey, believer, God did not give us the book of Revelation so that we would build bomb shelters in our backyards. Rather, he gave us the book of Revelation so that we would build bigger tables to invite our friends and our neighbors in to tell them about Jesus. Believer, Stop building the bomb shelter and start building a bigger table. Let's pray together, can we? Thank you again for checking out our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date on our services. If you'd like to give to support our ministry, you can do that at our website. That's connectchurchpf.com. Hope you enjoyed and have a great week.